welcome to New Renaissance Bookcast, Episode 5, with me, David Lorimer, from the Scientific and Medical Network. Each episode, I review one or two significant books across a number of disciplines, including science, health, philosophy, spirituality, psychology, ecology, and politics. This week, my first choice is a book by my friend Harold Wallach called Secular Spirituality. In this brilliant and searching study, Harold Wallach argues that the Enlightenment is as yet incomplete, having thrown out the baby of spirituality along with the bathwater of dogmatic Christianity. And he says, science freed itself and the intellectual minds not from spirituality and its essence, but the doctrinal building. He brings together the two senses of Enlightenment, East and West, contending that science now has to incorporate spirituality in order to attain a deeper sense of enlightenment as true knowledge. He distinguishes between spirituality representing the experiential core of religion from its outer doctrinal dogmatic clothing. In the introduction, he characteristically and frankly describes his own presuppositions, of which the most significant are that spiritual experience is always one of reality, and that consciousness is more than neurons firing in the brain. These go against mainstream thinking, even if there are good reasons for supposing them to be true. The next chapter continues this expository process with further clarifications and presuppositions relating to key terms like experience, spirituality, related to a reality that transcends the ego and its goals, reflecting a deeper sense of connectedness, spiritual experience, he says is a direct unmediated experience of an absolute reality that is beyond the experiencing self, religious experience, religion, religiosity, faith, doctrine and dogma, and then God and spiritual practice. Harold follows the radical empiricism of William James in asserting the primacy of experience and the basis of religion in the experience of its founders and saints. In the Catholic tradition, this was embodied in mystical theology, with its emphasis on the primacy of experience. However, the Church has always been suspicious of its mystics, Meister Eckhart is a prime example, and the spirit is converted into the letter, an emphasis on the water shifts to the container, and as Harold observes, the training of clerics focuses primarily on doctrine, faith, cognitive skills in teaching, but not experience and individual spirituality. This expresses the classic tension between spirit and letter, prophet and priest, experience and formulation slash proposition, right and left hemisphere. In this sense, it is true to say that dogmas are doctrinal condensations of experience and metaphors and should not be mistaken for propositional descriptions of reality. It is here that spiritual practice is pivotal in denoting all intentional human acts which were used to show, document, practice or renew our connectedness to a reality that transcends us. The basis of such practices is to achieve experiential access to that realm of absolute reality which is the goal and core of spiritual experience, he says. Although he doesn't mention the word, this is a good description of gnosis or direct insight beyond pistis as was also embodied in and expressed by C.G. Jung and represented an, a unitive and intuitive way of knowing beyond the senses and reason. 
The next historical chapter gives the reader a new understanding of the medieval concept of experience and the emergence of a new spirit of inquiry in universities. Harold describes how Roger Bacon formulated an experiential way of knowledge consisting of three elements of A, outer or sense experience, B, formal mathematical analysis of this experience, and C, inner experience. This last corresponds to the three eyes of Bonaventure, namely the eye of sense, the eye of reason, and the eye of contemplation. Bacon further explains how this inner or experiential science has seven levels. Harold sees this as a forerunner of a future all-encompassing science in which inner and outer experience were one, and where scientific and spiritual experience were two sides of the one process of understanding and knowing called experience. He then moves on to a thinker new to me, and I imagine to readers of this review and listeners here, Hugh of Balmer, with his experiential knowledge of God through the sensus interior and leading to an expression of all-encompassing love. The important point is that spiritual experience was and is a valid epistemological option. Harold develops this theme further in his discussion of Aquinas and Eckhart, showing how this holistic view of experience also emerges in William James and Franz Bentano, as opposed to Wilhelm Wundt, who considered non-ordinary states of consciousness beyond the pale. Harold advocates, and I agree with him, an extended notion of rationality to include spiritual experience. This was a central concern, and still is, of the scientific or medical network, bringing together intuitive insight with rational analysis and arguing for the epistemological and ontological reality of the inner. This brings up the question of epistemological authority. Ironically, in freeing itself from doctrinal bondage and dogmatic slavery under the churches, the Enlightenment moved towards its own dogmatic formulation of, as positivism and scientism. This latter term was apparently coined by William James and Edmund Hussell and represents the conversion of science as a method into a belief system. In this process, quote, science is assuming the very authority that it has taken away from religion over the centuries, unquote and becomes intolerant of heresy in its turn, as Harold himself has experienced in his researches on parapsychology and homeopathy. This raises questions of politics and power in suppressing, denigrating, or ignoring evidence inconsistent with scientific materialism. Logically, however, as R.G. Collingwood and others have pointed out, science is also subject to Gödelian incompleteness because the final foundations of science uh, are resting and, and cannot be provided within the framework of the system itself. It necessarily rests on fundamental metaphysical presuppositions. This brings Harold on to a discussion of the reality of consciousness and the epistemological status of inner experience, with a reminder that Nietzschean death of God is in fact the death of a doctrinal entity rather than the realm of experience. He explores idealism, materialism, and dualism before explaining his own view in terms of complementarity, entailing an ontological monism, allowing for phenomenological dualism in terms of our experience of one underlying reality. Here, a reference to the work of David Bohm on implicate and explicate orders would have been relevant. 
This leads on to his epistemology of inner experience, drawing on Brentano and proposing that inner experience, the experience of consciousness, will also be an access route to reality in its totality, and this inner mode of knowledge from inside, including <clears throat> direct knowledge of God as the totality of being. However, one should not forget at this point that our outer experience is also mediated by consciousness. Epistemologically, the referent of this inner spiritual experience is the structure of the world within. This can be illustrated from the phenomenology of the near-death experience with its various stages, although such structures and constructs are also con culturally conditioned. The next chapter <clears throat> explains in more detail examples of secular, non-dogmatic spirituality, potentially leading to a more complete and humane science. Harold provides a useful diagram of conscious states with two axes, on the vertical, conscious-unconscious, and on the horizontal, collective collection and fragmentation. In our distracted age, we are becoming all too familiar with fragmentation and dispersion, which is perhaps one reason for the recent popularity of meditation and mindfulness as forms of recollection. This leads on to an extensive and well-informed section on the neurobiology and physiology of concentration and relaxation, and a discussion of the psychology of meditation and spiritual practice, eventually bringing him back to Roger Bacon and his contention that spiritual practice leads to more certainty about spiritual realities, and the development of a science of experience in the broadest sense. Such practices can and do lead to experiences of unity, joy, freedom, love and light, as practitioners experience deeper levels of reality and act from these, as we know from research work on the transformative power of near-death experiences and spiritual experiences, as also to be found in the work of Sir Alistair Hardy. In the final part of the book, Harold identifies some ideological dangers, observing that spirituality can have a corrective function in reminding us that our opinion or model of reality is not reality itself. Narcissism is also a danger in view of the task of spirituality in transcending the ego. More generally, I believe we face a crisis of meaning and the threat of narrow fundamentalisms, not, not excluding scientific fundamentalism. Rather, and I agree here, we should consider the primacy of interconnectedness and a holistic view arising out of an experience of unity and interconnectedness on the basis of a culture of consciousness and spiritual experience. Spiritual experience. Scientifically, we're still hampered and limited by our materialistic understanding of consciousness and reality, based as this is on the primacy of the outer over the inner, of matter over mind. However, the inner experience of consciousness is our immediate reality, and inner structures such as relationships, purpose, meaning and values are central to our well-being. Working towards a spiritually informed science is an eminently worthwhile and significant project to which the network is devoted, and this book makes a hugely valuable contribution to articulating the necessary steps in order to achieve this. These will also involve the development of our education system in educating the inner person and introducing practices of silence. This has already started, in fact, in some areas. Then we can hope for a fuller realisation of enlightenment. The second book is called Belonging to God by William Keepin. 
Subtitled Spirituality, Science and the Universal Path of Divine Love, and with a foreword by Father Thomas Keating, this book breaks new ground in bringing together the mystical core of devotional paths across Hinduism, Christianity and Islam. The six chapters, each in relation to divine love, cover scriptures, mystics, practice, science, fire and principles. The book is grounded in interspirituality and endorsed by Ravi Ravindra with its deeper exploration of the spiritual transformative journey, which is the primary purpose of religion, hence the term interspiritual rather than interreligious dialogue. The author explains his own background as a mathematical physicist, psychologist, environmental science scientist and social activist, but his core is his mystical practice of meditation and prayer over the last 35 years. Thomas Keating has been convening the Snowmass Interreligious Conference for nearly as long as our mystics and scientists, and the group has formulated eight points of agreement, which I think most readers of this journal and listeners to this podcast would agree with, including the last, that disciplined practice is essential to the spiritual life. Yet spiritual attainment is not the result of one's own efforts, but of the experience of oneness with ultimate reality. Towards the end of the introduction, the author warns of the danger of becoming preoccupied with theology and philosophy and missing the most essential, intensive practice that leads to direct, humble connection to the living spirit. Indeed, this involves relinquishing the mind's insistent demand that everything must be understood on its own terms, in cogent concepts and tidy logical frameworks. He quotes a Sufi saying that to understand the inability to understand is true understanding. He further develops this line of thinking in his chapter on science and in an appendix on science and mysticism, where he observes that science is fundamentally a discipline of the human mind, grounded in empirical observations of the physical universe. This carries its own inherent limitations, but advanced scientific insight is not equivalent to advanced mystical realization, as the two kinds of knowing are correspondingly rooted in the relative truth of the mind and the absolute truth beyond the mind. David Bohm realized this and is quoted as saying that thought creates structures and then pretends they exist independently of thought. An important cultural issue is that very few scientists have pursued contemplative practice that cultivates consciousness beyond their minds although recent research in meditation may encourage more to embark on the journey. Reverting to earlier chapters, the author discusses the yoga of divine love in the Bhagavad Gita and compares insights with the Quran and the Gospels. His exposition is profound and illuminating, and he reminds readers that the essence of Islam is submission to the will of God, also showing the openness of this tradition if properly understood. Prayer and remembrance of God is absolutely critical. The next chapter explores common ground in three traditions and quotes Ibn Arabi's interesting distinction between two types of gnosis, knowing God through knowing yourself and knowing God through you as him, not as yourself. Again, this is a key insight uh, elaborated in the next chapter, not only by Ibn Arabi, but also by Shankara and Meister Eckhart. This reflects the three spiritual journeys of Sufism, the journey from God, the journey to God, and the mystical journey in God.
This last involves devotional surrender and practice, as the practitioner discovers that the inmost essence of the individual is not other than the transcendent essence of the Absolute. Full realization of this is, as the author maintains, the primary goal of all mystical traditions, and is achieved through interiorization, a concentrated withdrawal from outer awareness towards the innermost center of consciousness, involving the transcendence of personal will and self. The next chapter on intimacy with the infinite explains the Hindu term prapati, or love, of, love for God, through absolute surrender. The author explains the background and practical implications, giving examples from Brother Lawrence and his beautifully simple book, The Practice of the Presence of God, the Sufi Arabia, and from Abandonment Divine Providence by Jean-Pierre de Cossade. This kind of surrender seems to be the prerequisite for grace, but is a supreme sacrifice so far as the ego is concerned. There's then a very good chapter on science and spirituality, on recent work in consciousness studies, and that draws extensively on the work of David Bohm. As I'd been thinking along similar lines myself recently, I was particularly elaborate, interested in the author's elaboration of the fractal nature of consciousness, reflecting the ancient understanding of as above, so below. He explains the mathematics of the fractal and their presence at various levels of the natural world, arguing that fractal consciousness illuminates mystical oneness or the vertical identity of the mystic with the divinity or essence of God. It can also be used horizontally to explain the manifestation of different religious traditions, which the author illustrates in diagrammatic form, descending from the absolute. Spiritually, the monotheistic religions see humans as made in the image of God, and, as I discuss in relation to St. Bernard elsewhere in this issue, the task is to evolve into the likeness of God, as Plotinus also understood. Fire, as a universal means of transformation, represents divine love, as explained in the following chapter with quotations from Rumi, St. John of the Cross, and Sri Andra and Andamaya Ma. This brings the author to reiterate his central message that love for and surrender to God is the way and that all else is peripheral. We are called upon to relinquish our separate self and identity since without self-effacement there is no grace and without grace there can be no transcendence. All this is summed up in ten principles of divine love. The author makes an eloquent and persuasive case for the centrality of the path of divine love and invites readers to begin their own journey towards their own essence. Surely nothing could be more important. In the next issue, I'm going to be talking about a new biography of Hermann Hesse and uh, reading some of his poems. So I look forward to your company on that occasion. Thank you.